Welcome to Earth Matters, bringing you environment and social justice stories. Today's show was made on the lands of the Narago people, traditional custodians of the majority of the region we now know as the Snowy Monero region. The show also was made on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri in Canberra. I'm Beck Horridge. Once again, I'm in a homemade studio surrounded by old coats hanging to stop the echo and there's a persistent possum that keeps making scratching noises in the roof above me. Thank you to the people powering Radio 3CR in Nam, Melbourne and the Community Radio Network for broadcasting Earth Matters nationally across these stolen lands. I pay my respects to the original people of all the lands that were never ceded and still are Aboriginal land. How are we to convince the largely urban populations of today that their continuing well-being will depend on the well-being of the biosphere, the country and marine environments they so seldom see and know so little about? Conservationists, with the world's most urgent battle on their hands, must begin to enlist not only rational recognition of the problem, but human concern, distress and love. This seems to me the great chance for poetry and for the reversal of the otherwise relentless process of destruction which threatens us and the world around us. The risk is that time is so short and the opposing forces are so strong. The abyss is terribly near and terribly tempting. And the choice of real responsibility and real understanding is a fearsome prospect. From the poet Judith Wright, read by Janet Salisbury. Janet is a founding member of a new project, the Women's Climate Congress. The Women's Climate Congress says that it's time for women's leadership to help turn the tide of political culture from polarised discord to collaboration and cooperation. The Women's Climate Congress ask, How can women rising transform our response to climate change? And they call to the women of Australia to join them. The Women's Climate Congress propose that nurture of life in the natural world and care for the earth must be at the centre of every policy government decision. The Congress is conducting a series of webinars, and this one is called Women's Voices Changing the Public Conversation on Climate Change. Here is Janet Salisbury with Jonica Newby, author of Beyond Climate Grief, A Journey of Love, Snow, Fire and an Enchanted Beer Can and also Rebecca Huntley, author of How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way that Makes a Difference. Now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our two guests for today, Jonica and Rebecca. So Rebecca Huntley is one of Australia's foremost researchers on social trends. She is an author and researcher and holds degrees in law, film studies, and a PhD in gender studies. Her recent publication, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way that Makes a Difference, uses insights from psychology, neuroscience, 
and sociology to show why the commonly used information deficit model of communication is deeply flawed. Rebecca's central proposition is that communication about climate change must take into account the human characteristics of emotion, imagination and loyalty to tribe. To make a difference, we need to understand the range of emotions people react with when presented with the science of climate change. Jonica is a science reporter, author, TV presenter and director best known for her two decades on ABC TV's popular weekly show, Catalyst. She's twice won the Eureka Award, Australia's most prestigious science journalism prize, and is a recipient of a World TV Award. Her book, Beyond Climate Grief, A Journey of Love, Fire, Snow and Enchanted Beer Can, is her first book, and it features conversations with Missy Higgins, comedian Charlie Pickering, business leader Mike Cannon-Brooks, practical advice from psychological and scientific experts, incredible accounts from everyday heroes, plus inspiring stories from the climate strike kids. Beyond Climate Grief provides guidance and emotional sustenance to help shore up courage for the uncertainties ahead. It reminds us of the love, beauty and wonder in the world and amidst disaster, how we all have a touch of epic hero in us. Rebecca and Jonica's books approach talking about climate change from two different directions. Rebecca's focus is more on connecting emotionally to communicate with others and Jonica's on managing our own emotional load. But I think they probably both relate well to those words from Judith Wright that I read out earlier. I'm going to start with a question for you, Rebecca. You structured your book on how to talk about climate change around emotions human concern, distress and love, as Judith Wright suggested. Can you start by telling us a little about why this emotional lens spoke to you as a way to communicate your research on how to talk to people about this big issue? Yes, you're right. I mean, I did go through it that way. I suppose I do have two chapters that are kind of more foundational before I go through those emotions, which is to understand the extent to which fact can help us. So an appeal to scientific fact and reason, which is not irrelevant, but it can't get us all the way there. So a little bit of work around that, like the limitations and the capacity for fact to persuade. And then the critical important role of emotion in persuasion. I mean, for anybody who's a professional science communicator like yourself, it's a little bit like science communication 101, I suppose. But it was as somebody who is, is a social scientist rather than a natural scientist communicating it, a little bit about me trying to educate myself around that as well. And then I didn't do psychology at university. I did other kinds of degrees and have learned about psychology and, you know, the science around human emotion kind of almost indirectly in the work I do as a social researcher rather than academically. And so I felt that I almost needed to break it down quite fundamentally first for myself, but also for a engaged but not expert reader. So one of the kind of mentor and friend and colleague of many years, Carmen Lawrence, who is at University of Western Australia now and um, an emeritus professor there and does a lot of work in this area, said, yeah, it, it reads very much like Climate Change Communication 101, but for people who don't really even know that that's a thing. So it helped for me to do that. It also, in a sense, mirrored the kind of the trajectory of my own emotional response as I wrote the book during the Black Summer Fires. 
but it revealed to me too as well. So it's less, you know, I started thinking that it, it was a progression from constructive negative emotions like, you know, fear and anger and all the rest of it to love and hope. But that's a furphy as well. They're all, they're, they exist not so much as a, a progression, but as a much more on a flatter plane in that. They can all be helpful. They can all be constructive. They can all be rational responses to engagement with climate science. You know, it's it's a completely rational response when you really engage with it to be angry, to be fearful, to be blamey, <laughs> perhaps to feel guilt, perhaps to feel shame, a whole range of things. And so while it started out almost in my mind as a progression, it wasn't so much of a progression as a kind of a, an engagement with these emotions to a different point. And even though it ends with love, love, it's not so much that that's linear, that it's also quite cyclical as all, you know, the various stages of grief can be as well. And uh, Jonica, you chose to structure your book around emotion. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on for you there? Yeah, well, I was I was getting emotional. So um, I, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd had this moment where having been a science reporter for all those decades, um, I suddenly realised that something terribly important and personal to me was actually at stake. And so it's the moment when the intellectual of climate change suddenly goes from that abstract over there to gut-wrenching and personal. And for me, it actually plunged me into a profound depression and uh, to the point where I actually, for the first time in my life, um, sought antidepressants. And this was, look, this was an entirely personal experience and I tried to find my own way through it. I had no intention of writing a book, but then by 2019, I just had a series of conversations with other people totally unrelated and they started talking about their own experiences. And, and I suddenly woke up mid-year and just went, oh my goodness, I need to write a book about how to journey through this. I didn't even have a word for it originally, but of course I've settled on the term climate grief because I think it just encompasses so many things. And the other thing, these are rational responses. Grief isn't a pathology. It's a rational response to this overwhelming news. And it also, grief encompasses a cyclical range of emotions, if you like. So the specific trigger for me, and I should just mention that the nature of my book, the other thing was that when I did write it, I decided to write it as a story, as a memoir, because I hadn't really seen that done in the climate space. And I personally like stories. I'm a fiction reader. So I wanted to bring a bit of epic journey and Lord of the Rings. And, you know, I've got I've got pretty mountains on the cover and so on. So to give you a hint that it's, uh, you, you do get taken on, on my quest. It came about because of my love for snow and I'm actually sitting in snow country at the moment because that's been subsequently one of the promises to myself that I'd spend a bit of time with the snow each year while, it's, while I've still got it. In 2017, yeah, I was I was skiing in Japan and, and I was loving it and it was the first time I'd been there and I was skiing with this Swiss ski instructor and I asked him, you know, what are you doing? Why are you here in January, his busiest time of year? And he said that uh, Switzerland had had no snow that winter. It had been a green Christmas. And then later that week, half the Great Barrier Reef died. And And the thing is, 
I just had this gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching moment where I looked around at my magical kingdom and thought, oh, my God, you know, this this could happen to the snow. And I should backtrack and explain that I'd been in love with snow since I was a little kid. Like I grew up in Perth and there wasn't a lot of snow there, but snow is full of our, it's in our fantasies. It's in our stories. It's in, it's in Narnia and Lord of the Rings. And, you know, imagine Frodo trying to do all his things in the tropics. It just doesn't have the same resonance. So to me, snow didn't just represent an ecosystem it's also this sense of wonder and enchantment and magic. And it came to be one of those places I call heart places. And we all have them, you know, places that we fall in love with as much as we fall in love with a person. And I'd specifically later in life fallen in love with a real snow place where I am now, Kunamanamaji, which is Australia's snowy mountains. And and they are, I, I promise you, every bit as stunning and beautiful and magical as anything that I read about in stories as a child. I mean, just yesterday I was up looking at the snow gums and they were doing their thing. They were ice rhymed and they were glowing like chandeliers against the sun. We don't have that anywhere else in the world. So when I realized that, that this could go, I spent a year researching what was going to happen to the snow. And at the end of that, I just started crying. And that was when I got to the point of, uh, of visiting my doctor to seek antidepressants. And ultimately, I thought, I can't be the only one asking this question. How do I go forward and live a good and happy life under the weight of this fearsome knowledge? So that was my quest. That was Jonica Newby, author of Beyond Climate Grief. A journey of love, snow, fire and an enchanted beer can and Rebecca Huntley about her book, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way that Makes a Difference, in conversation with Janet Salisbury as part of the Women's Climate Congress. You're with Earth Matters, covering environment and social justice issues, broadcasting across the stolen lands via the Community Radio Network. I'm Beck Horridge. Well, today we can only hear a small part of the most interesting talks the Women's Climate Congress are generating. Some of the other topics from their other recent webinars are turning the tide. How can women turn the tide of our political culture from polarised discord to collaboration and cooperation to restore climate balance by 2030? Another topic, listening to First Nations knowledge to inform earth-centred collaborative governance. The recordings of these webinars are on the Women's Climate Congress website. The Women's Climate Congress will host a one-day online event at the end of November and subsequent events in 2022. The Congress of Women are keen to include the views of women everywhere on their national Congress themes, which relate to the need for collaboration across diverse interests if we are to develop an action on climate that everyone can sign on to. The Women's Climate Congress hopes to reach women all over Australia through a spiralling out conversational process and will provide a kit to make this easy. 
and the hosting team in Canberra is conducting the first conversation. And then each woman will hold a conversation with their contacts. And then we'll invite those who attend to hold a similar conversation with others and so on. And there's lots of information on their website, which is www.congressofwomen.com. Uh, now we'll continue the conversation with Jonica Newby and Rebecca Huntley, interviewed by Lynn Stevens. Jonica Newby gives a couple of strategies to deal with hitting overwhelming rock bottom climate grief. What happens when you hit the despair? What happens when you hit the overwhelm? Which is what started my journey of the book because I had personally hit that point. And look, there's a number of strategies that I came across and I don't have time to go into them all here. And this is relevant for parents with their kids exactly as well. Like how do you deal with some of these doomism feelings that young people have, obviously, as a parent? How do you guide through that when you're struggling to actually deal with it yourself? So I personally had a big problem with hope because I felt like it, it felt like a personal failing that I didn't have hope anymore. And that it kept leading me into despair when, for example, you get someone like a Trump elected when, when it really, really matters what happens over the next year. How do you avoid falling into despair? Well, I think to a degree, things about grief is you kind of have to just go through it. But how do you come out the other side? I had a few conversations, but active hope ended up, and I'm sure Rebecca knows all about this too. A lot of people suggested this philosophy to me. Active hope is uh, a different way of thinking about hope, and it's the keys in the first word, active. I'll just do a quick little summary of, of my, my understanding of the philosophy of active hope. So it's a way of having sort of action and hope going forward, but not slipping back into denial and just assuming everything will be fine. So you hold in your head two different futures. One is this future where things, you know, don't change and we just go down that worst possible path. So you're aware that that's a possibility of future. And then you hold in your head, you imagine the best possible future from this point. And then your gift of active hope is your action. So there's always an action implicit in the, the hope. And then uh, they go further in that and say that, you know, hit that overwhelm, consider it as the deep dive, almost like, you know, if you're an alcoholic, just suddenly realizing, okay, I've got to go through this and do something about it and come out the other side and use it as a bouncing point to come out with courage and motivation and a realistic approach. Realistic hope is another, another term that I've seen used. And she uses this really nice term, which is use it as a call to adventure. <laughs> and you go and catch your inspiring vision. And then that might be what you do as your action. There's a whole lot of things that mix between action and acceptance, like not over-personalizing the problem because uh, you alone can't solve things, but you can be part of groups that are trying to do really active things. So yeah, I think basically grief acknowledges that you love and you have to come through that and out into the action and motivation out the other side with courage. Rebecca, do you want to? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I've, I've, my chapter on hope is a riff on everything that 
Jonica said and um, draws on similar kinds of material. I would say two things. I think, first of all, hopelessness and periods of hopelessness are inevitable. And there's actually another kind of really quite useful term is this idea of toxic positivity. This kind of idea that you're not going to feel hopeless or overwhelmed at, at times is unrealistic. I think you have your own personally devised tactics for dealing with that, which are going to be very personal to you about whether what that might be. And then I also think there's something to be said for when you do, as, as Jonathan said, kind of bounce back into activism, which is what most people do to tell you the truth, is to kind of recalibrate what you've decided, that period of hopelessness and how that recalibrates what you want to do. I've seen some people become then more ambitious, right? You know, kind of like, okay, I feel a bit hopeless and then I'm going to do something different or I'm going to be bigger. And other people scale it down a bit, you know, to be able to go, all right, well, I've had people say, look, this is all too much, but I'm just going to throw myself into the community gardens of my local area and, you know, do that. And that is not nothing. So I think that Knowing that climate change will continue to shape our world for the foreseeable future, we have to ensure that our engagement with hope, hopelessness, action, is it itself, uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I agree, and very much so. And I guess just to go back to that term grief, that was one of the reasons I ended up, or hopelessness, whatever, whatever the two are, grief isn't something that is ever over you just become better at managing it and it doesn't have unrealistic expectations with it either. So yeah, things will, you know, I'll be in tears again, I'm sure, (laughs) you know, this is, this stuff comes and goes and that's okay. You can accept it. Thank you. Just very briefly, Jonica, is there, if you, if you're asked the question, what you're most positive about, what would it be? What, What would be your answer? Well, as Rebecca said early on in this conversation, I think that the turmoil of the last two years has been extraordinary and there have been a lot more sort of courageous um, heroes, in inverted commas. One of my bits of advice was look for heroes. I love the language of epic narrative. I love Lord of the Rings, so that language speaks to me. There are people really on a world stage really pushing. There are business leaders who are really feeling this emotional tipping point and realising it's not just a financial bottom line, it is actually a question of the future of their own kids. And there is, through all this turmoil, it's going to be an exciting decade, whatever else you want to say about it, but there is this feeling of these forces are really kind of coming to the, the fore now, both for and against. And it's like, you don't quite know. You're barracking, you know, for, for goodness to triumph. But the other thing that gives me a lot of um, positivity and hope is the pro-social emotions. We saw in disaster that rather than us all turning inward and being isolationist and, you know, turning into the post-apocalyptic cannibals of the road, uh, at least 80% of us are driven, I think, and I don't have exact figures on that, but we're driven by the pro-social emotions of compassion, mm-hmm. gratitude, and overwhelmed by an urge to help. There's always going to be a pretty big chunk of the population who, because of the way mm-hmm. their brains are shaped, they have low empathy and they are not going to be that. But the majority of us actually do, in extremis, come together and look after our fellows. So these pro-social emotions are things like, um, yeah, gratitude, compassion, love. 
And the big one I'm going to throw in there is pride. I still think pride, you know, is one of the most important emotions to appeal to and to get people moving forward. It's like wanting to feel good about doing right by your community and whatever community that is. And I think that, you know, just the vision of all those firefighters, volunteer firefighters, out there every day. I mean, I cried every time I saw someone in uniform, you know, for months because you just felt so proud of your fellow Australians, you know, giving it their best shot. And so I do feel that when everyone eventually hits that social tipping point and sort of, well, most people anyway, and and goes out of their Chernobyl brain and, and somehow accept that the future, we have to change what we're doing, that we will all kind of more or less pull together. That's where I put some of my active hope anyway. Okay, thanks. I'm really aware of time, but Rebecca, I want to give you just a, a minute if you could. Before oh, we I mean, I agree with all of that. Lots to, of stuff um, is happening. What, um, lots of stuff is happening. I'm, I mean, I've, I've come across six or seven different people, campaigns, activists, bits of information every day in the work that I do as a consultant on climate communication. So, but um, I want people to, just to give you something little, I want people to Google miners in Teslas. This guy guy called Daniel who takes coal miners and even took Malcolm Roberts from One Nation. He took them for a drive in a Tesla. It's brilliant. And you just the it's just joyful and fun. It's basically saying, people, this world that you're so scared of, you shouldn't be scared of. This is interesting. So I think that the climate movement is becoming a lot more creative so much is happening at so many different directions to move stuff along so yeah oh lots of people know about them but I think that there are also lots of fantastic things happening at a small level at a big level at a systemic level at a cultural level it's all happening a bit yes could have we could have done with it 10 years ago but there is a uh there's a momentum that's building that's almost irresistible even to our federal government and I look forward to the moment that we see things shift definitively. Rebecca Huntley interviewed by Lynn Stevens. Thanks to all our guests on Earth Matters today, Rebecca Huntley, Jonica Newby and Janet Salisbury and Lynn Stevens. Thank you also to the Women's Climate Congress for bringing us this discussion. Find the links on our show homepage on the 3CR website. You have been listening to Earth Matters. This edition was produced for Radio 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, Wurundjeri country, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. If you'd like to get in touch with the Earth Matters team, you can email us at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or visit our Facebook on Earth Matters 3CR Radio. And to listen to or to share editions of Earth Matters, you can find this and all the Earth Matters podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. Look out for more from the Earth Matters team next week. I'm Beck Horridge. Hello, renewables, energy from the sky.